What do you think of when you hear the word barbarian? Is it a merciless raider laying waste to a village of innocent peasants? Is it the sick character you're going to roll at your next D&D session because your gnome artificer bought it in a brutal TPK last week? Or is it someone who doesn't use the proper fork with the corresponding course at a dinner party? Whatever context springs to your mind, I bet it has nothing to do with the way they talk, does it? The word stems from the ancient Greek word barbaros, which was a term they applied to mock anyone who didn't speak Greek, and therefore sounded stupid. If you weren't speaking Greek, you just sounded to them like you were saying bar, bar, bar over and over again like an idiot. Language is mighty important to a society, not only because it allows us to communicate, but because it helps us to separate out the people who, quote, don't belong. Apart from maybe our visual prejudices, there is no faster or more effective way to other someone than through language. Look at how Native Americans were portrayed in Hollywood until, honestly, relatively recently. Tougher to steal their land and drive them to near extinction if they don't sound like they speak in grunts and monosyllabic nonsense. And then remember how Asian communities were made to sound, especially after Pearl Harbor. Especially the Japanese. The Germans got a bit of a pass linguistically, as they were usually just portrayed as speaking English when they spoke at all. Sure, you might get the occasional 9-9 or Schnell thrown into the mix, and they were usually some combination of scheming, bumbling, and evil, but they were fluent in the kings. All of this to say that if you'd been waiting since the advent of talking pictures for Hollywood to deliver a realistic depiction of an international cast speaking their own native language as they spoke it, you had to wait a really long time. And today's film was the film you were waiting for. Kind of. Other Hollywood movies had flirted with the concept, but none of them had committed this hard to the idea, and it isn't difficult to see why. The Normandy invasion has been touched on in war films prior to this, sometimes as a backdrop to a romantic plotline, sometimes as a countdown event to build tension, but never before or honestly since with this scope or authenticity. Even modern mainstays like Saving Private Ryan and the miniseries Band of Brothers don't give this level of detail to the historical event they are famous for depicting. So how does this film set a bar that so many others fail to meet? Scrap any semblance of a plot? Stick only to the facts on the ground whenever possible? Pack it to the eyeballs with so many Hollywood legends the box office takes care of itself? and give people their language back so they don't look like barbarians. Even though they're Nazis, and they probably should look like barbarians at least a little bit. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So remember that one click must be answered by two clicks, but there's a lot of other stuff that makes two clicks, so maybe do three clicks? Four? Or duck call? Something that doesn't sound like the bolt action on a standard issue rifle that literally everyone has? Maybe? with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director, as we discuss the least old Hollywood war film with the most old Hollywood stars, 1962's Daryl F. Zanuck-produced adaptation of the Cornelius Ryan book, The Longest Day. Call it in. It's danger close. 
Welcome back to Danger Close, a Warfilm podcast. My name is Dan, and I am here with my partners... Katie. And Liam. Today, we are going to be talking about 1962's The Longest Day, a film with a bajillion famous people in it, and also our first John Wayne movie, which I'm sure is going to come up several times. How was this our first fucking John Wayne movie? I couldn't tell you, but it is, so we're going to have to spend some time talking about that. Careful selection. (laughs) Curated content. That's right. And Katie's here with our mission briefing. The Longest Day is a big film in many ways. To start with, it's over three hours long, has 42 international stars, four directors, three cinematographers, several writers, the involvement of three different governments, and a budget to rival anything Hollywood had made before. Producer Daryl Zanuck had just left a very powerful position at 20th Century Fox, and his influence is the only reason the film was able to get made. After his own stint in World War II, mostly getting footage of the fighting and war efforts in Africa, after demanding to do more than he was initially assigned, Zanuck was determined to find a way to bring a large-scale story of war to the big screen. When he read Cornelius Ryan's book, also called The Longest Day, he was inspired and immediately bought the rights and began using his formidable will and influence to make the project come to fruition. The film covers D-Day from several angles, including the German one, although the focus for that side mostly remains with the higher-ups as they desperately try to get a handle on what is happening and determine how to respond to the invasion. This isn't a film with a specific story. Instead, it taps into several stories and weaves together a narrative of the overarching experiences of D-Day from several perspectives. How well did that work for you guys? Because I had some, you know, concerns. We'll say concerns. So... I've been scratching my head on this one because I knew we were going to talk about this. And if nobody else was going to talk about it, I was going to talk about it. So thank you for talking about it right up front. Yes. It's so, yeah. Yeah. So here's, here's a question that I have. If, if I can, if I can answer your question with a question, Katie, Dan, can either of you think of a way or a time after this, that this kind of thing was done better? where you have like all of these disparate stories and characters flowing through the same time period and content, the same conflict, but then like sometimes meeting up and pairing up together later, I've been scratching my head and I feel like I've seen this done since this movie, but I can't pull into my head like the exact, I I don't know why I, I, my, my memory is failing me. I can only pull in examples that I hate more. I would say Dunkirk comes kind of close to this kind of storytelling. Good one, Katie. It had a very, like, the thin red line does it, but the thin red line sucks. I mean... For some people. For No, just unequivocally, (laughs) existentially, the thin red line blows. There's no such thing, Liam. As existentialism? No, as something blowing (laughs) just across the board. It doesn't happen. I think Dunkirk seems very inspired by this. That was actually a point I was totally going to bring up, because... The disparate narratives and trying to cover all of it, although that film only does it from the British perspective, feels kind of similar. But otherwise, at this moment, I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, like I feel like I've seen this done other places and I feel like I've like I've liked it more. 
it didn't really work for me in this, but I also feel like that this is maybe one of those things that crawled so that other movies could walk and other movies could run. You know what I mean? I agree. I think. Yeah, I can't think of a specific example, neither in film nor in books, but I would say that the format is more familiar to me in a novel where you have alternating chapters of this chapters with this group of people, and then you skip to the next group, and then you go back to the original group, and you kind of alternate two or more groups of people. Stephen King does that a lot. Yeah, it almost felt like something out of Game of Thrones where it's like three seasons later, you're like, oh, look, it's that guy. Love that guy. Yeah. Yes. I'm glad they finally got to meet. Yeah, if you condense Game of Thrones into a film, it it definitely does that. But TV shows do that a lot because you have extensive hours to do the thing. So yeah, I don't have an answer for you. I, I can't think of an example. Long story short, I didn't love that about this. I really felt like it was keeping me at an arm's distance. It didn't let me get too close to anybody. The people that I did feel connections to, I don't think it was because of their characters or their performance in this movie, because I didn't get enough time with them. But for some reason, maybe it's because he's hot as fuck, and maybe it's just because I knew him from like that other thing. But Richard Beamer? Oh, yeah. Yep. The guy who looks like Gomer Pyle almost plays a private dutch schultz yep yep that's who i was thinking of was tony in west side story oh and so i kept going like it's tony from west side story like look at tony it's been a long time since i saw that movie and i don't love him in west side story but because i know him from west side story i was really attached to him in this and he kind of had like the gambler's sword of Damocles dangling over him where it's just like, oh, he had good luck. So now he's going to die. Oh, and I was it's like, the guy with the pile of money. Yeah. The yes. guy with the pile of yep. money. Oh, gotcha. He plays okay. Tony. And it's like, he has the stupidest fucking performance and delivery in West Side Story. Oh. Yeah. Like, I really don't like him in West Side Story as Tony, but watching him in this, all I could think of was like, oh, it's Tony. <laughs> You know, I don't want to like jump into trivia right away since we got to do the history and and kind of give some context for this film. But while we're talking about him again, I've mentioned this before that I'm a nerd about like inflation calculator. And like when people mention U.S. dollars, especially in the past, I'm always like, but how much is that exactly? Right. Okay, I can't wait to hear this. So fifty dollars. The guy who so there's a guy that goes broke, another character, and he's walking around the ship trying to borrow fifty bucks. And I was like, I wouldn't lend you fucking fifty bucks now. Right. I'm like, when you hear someone in the forties just asking for fifty bucks, fifty bucks was like eight hundred dollars back then. So I'm like, damn, this guy's just going around asking for eight hundred dollars. What? The character you're talking about who wins twenty five hundred dollars and then subsequently loses it. Private Tony. That's 40 grand in today's money. I mean, oh, granted, yeah. dude, he does say this is more money than I've ever had in my life, but I feel like he's not even acting like someone that just won 40 grand. I'm like, you just won a Lexus? Like, what? That's crazy. And I looked up the pay scales for U.S. military between like 42 and 46. And obviously, this isn't super accurate. Depends on what you did. But generally speaking, the chart went from about 50 to $150 a month, depending on how many years you had served. So... We're talking about, again, 50 bucks being a month's wages for some people and $2,500, I'd imagine, buying you a fucking house. Down payment, at least. No, that would just buy you the house. No, back like then. a house would cost like, yeah, I remember in, uh, in It's a Wonderful Life, houses were like $5,000 straight up. But Dan, so I, you, you might be able to lend some more insight into this having been in, in the service. 
not necessarily in this branch, but I've met people who have served on like submarines. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I heard is that this guy would sometimes he would go before he would deploy before they would ship out. He'd buy like a go to Costco and just buy a shit ton of like Hershey bars Mm. and just keep them until they had been out in a submarine for like three months and everybody ran out of Hershey bars and were getting all this money that they had absolutely nothing to do with because they're in a submarine. And so he'd start selling Hershey bars for like 30 bucks a pop and people would just pay it. Yeah. Again, so many things about the military are like being in prison, I imagine. So it's just like being confined to one place. Yeah, exactly. And so like, I remember in combat training when we were all stuck in the same barracks and whatever, back in 2003, I still had like my gigantic book of CDs, you know, like 200 Mm -hmm. CDs in this giant book. And people would want to borrow them and I would just, I didn't charge for it, but I would collect people's driver's licenses because I'm like, and so I would take the CD out and put their driver's license or their ID in the slot <laughs> Damn, so that I knew clever. exactly who the fuck had borrowed my CD. And yeah, absolutely. yeah I was, you know, I had all this music. It's like, yeah, you it, just weird stuff like that happens when you're on a ship on deployment on whatever, because you can be getting paid and getting all this direct deposit, but you can't really do much with that money except for gamble or send it home. So you find creative ways to create black market basically well and that was also the other thing i was thinking was these guys know that they're about to invade in like hours to days right right what do they give a fuck about money at that point oh yeah and several of them knew they were going to die right or Mm -hmm. that the chances were pretty high even these young guys who maybe they've never been in combat there's definitely some sort of like well fuck it i've got five thousand dollars or whatever sitting in the bank or maybe less like let me put it all on black yeah you know let me (laughs) and and also i think that that's one thing that the film at the beginning really gives you a feel for because several different characters talk about it including the higher up generals and officers and it's the concept of hurry up and wait in the military Mm -hmm. to be able to mobilize quickly it takes months of planning and preparation and logistics. And so once you have everything staged, you can't really allow people too much freedom to go fuck off because if all of a sudden the command comes down, you need to be deployable within an hour, two hours, 12 hours, whatever it is, depending on the situation. And so you kind of are holding people hostage because they're all staged with all their gear. You see this in Band of Brothers when before they do their jump into D-Day, right? And they're just sitting around and it's like, is this the day? Is this the day? And they're sitting around with all their gear ready to go. And then eventually 10 hours go by and they're told to stand down. They're like, okay, it's definitely not happening today. We'll just have to come back tomorrow, whatever. And that's a really common theme in the military from the very small tactical realm to the bigger strategic picture that is something that's just constantly happening all around and everyone is criticizing the higher-ups right gripes go up and everyone's going what the fuck like we're all ready to go i'm gonna fuck kill some germans or whatever they're saying you know it's like why aren't we going and of course there's all these big strategical reasons katie did you respond to everything you wanted to respond to there no no i didn't give my answer yeah let's let's let katie go then well dan did you actually give your answer because what's the question How well did this constant changing of perspectives work for you? Yeah. So while I can't come up with the, uh, an example off the top of my head that did it better or did it worse, I agree with Katie that Dunkirk is a good example. It's weird, right? Because we talk about this all the time, but there's all these people who at this time were crazy famous. I mean, so people would have all this association with them. 
I'm starting to have some of that association, right? I'm like, oh, there's Rod Steiger. There's Edmund O'Brien. Liam loves that guy, right? Like I'm starting, and I, of course I know who John Wayne is, even though, believe it or not, this is my first John Wayne movie that I've actually sat down. I know at this point people believe it, but. Holy shit. That's so, that's so crazy. I know all about him. I mean, I could probably imitate his voice before I even watch this. Like I've seen, you know, a million clips and interviews and whatever. I just hadn't actually sat down to watch one. So, but my point being that you can, you have to kind of have to put yourself in the seat of a 1962 person in the audience who, if you're male, most likely you were in World War II if you're of the right age. These are movie stars of the time. So it is actually Thin Red Line is not that weird of a comparison because Thin Red Line famously has all these random celebrities from John Travolta to... Jared Leto, who at the time wasn't that famous. George Clooney showed up and like all kinds of people, mm-hmm. right? Jim Caviezel, Sean Penn, Woody Harrelson. So there's all these faces that are going to look really famous. And I don't know how much that did for this movie or get in the way of this movie, right? Because we talk about Saving Private Ryan's a good example where other than Tom Hanks and a couple of cameos, even Matt Damon was only accidentally well-known by the time Saving Private Ryan came out. But when he was hired for the job, he was kind of an unknown. And Spielberg wanted to do that. He wanted to have unknown faces. This is a mixed bag because you have not only a lot of really, really famous actors, but also the age disparity that we talk about often is like especially egregious in this, especially mm-hmm. John Wayne. And like there's several characters that are 20 to 30 years older than the real people who they're actually based on real people. So I don't know what that did for audiences at the time, but to go back long-windedly to answer your question, for me, yeah, I agree that it felt very vignette kind of. I mean, there is some circular, like, John Wayne does come in towards the beginning, and he is at the end of the film, so there is some conclusion to that arc a little bit, but you are with all these different groups, and because they made the choice also to speak the different languages and subtitle them you have french episodes and german episodes and british and american episodes and so yeah you don't really feel like you're on a journey with any particular character i don't feel like this film has a protagonist other than the allies right it's like okay it's the good guys versus the germans but I know they filmed it in black and white so that they could intersperse archival footage in here. I only caught one instance where I knew for sure, which was the the stormtroopers marching in parade at the beginning. I was like, okay, that's archival footage. Those are like real stormtroopers. And that's the only time I caught it for sure. I'm sure a lot of it is other military aircraft and whatever. So yeah, I don't know. It was a new, newish experience for me. It didn't work that well for me as a movie that I could really sink my teeth into and buy the narrative, but I also hadn't really seen it before on this scale. So I wasn't in a place to judge it necessarily. Like I had other things to judge this film about, but that wasn't one of them. Guys, this is really weird, but this just put me in mind of something else. (laughs) This same year, 1962 was a big year for this kind of shit. Hmm. Because over at MGM, with a a few of the same stars, they released How the West Was Won. Oh, okay. Okay. Which, have you guys seen that? I don't think so. I'm not sure. So it's like, it's, it's, again, very vignette and it has a bajillion stars in it. 
but it's about the westward movement of the settlers and how the west was won that's it's it's right there in the title that's brilliant but uh (laughs) it has john wayne it has henry fonda it's got jimmy stewart but nobody's in the entirety of the movie Hmm. and it is very vignette like that so i don't know if this was just a 1962 thing or if one of them was trying to keep up with another one when they found out they were doing the thing. But I do know that Daryl Zanuck, when he said he wanted to do it in black and white, to your point, Dan, the studio heads had a problem. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was a big deal. We're doing color now, guys. Like, this is a big epic. Right. Same studio, 20th Century, is doing Cleopatra at the same time, mm-hmm. which was notoriously over budget. Right. Oh, yes. And they were like, we're doing big color spectacles. Why do you want to put this in black and white? How are people going to be able to tell this from newsreel footage? And he's like, exactly. And (laughs) no, what he said was, don't worry. I'm going to put a star in every shot. Oh, that's what the purpose (laughs) was. I mean, other than to sell it, but okay. Which is such a fucking Hollywood big wig. It is. Mogul kind of thing. That's such a line, but. But yeah, he fucking did it. And I'll say one last quick thing before we pass it to Katie for her answer is that if your goal is to do a big overarching kind of big picture strategy on uh, the allies invading Europe in 1944, it's a little more challenging to try and be like, let's shove these five characters into everything. We'll start in England and then they'll paratroop and then they'll be here and then they'll be on the beach and then they'll do that again. Saving Private Ryan kind of does it, but that's kind of challenging. I think they went more for the big picture strategy and that's part of why they did it in a more vignette kind of way with five directors, et cetera, et cetera. But Katie, what's your answer? So I think I had a lot of issues with it. The first 20 minutes. Like, what? Okay. And, and then I realized that was the setup was we were because you hate people speaking German. No, no. I <laughs> learned German in high school and this actually was a moment where I was like, I still remember a lot of German. Goddamn. Katie, you know German? How has this never come up in the podcast? I do know a tiny, tiny little bit of German. So once I figured out, oh, okay, this is what we're doing, is we're trying to tell an overarching story that gives us a lot of different perspectives so that the viewer can kind of understand what D-Day was like for as many people as possible. Mm. Something that would usually best be told by a book where you can have these definitive chapters and right. more character work and development. They kind of try to cram it into a film and make it like a docudrama with a ridiculous amount of comedy, which we'll get into later, I'm sure. But it does its best to have some kind of through line because most of the people that we see in each vignette we then follow, like John Wayne or... Richard Burton, Paul Anka, yeah, the biggest names in this. Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum. Oh, oh, I love, I love Mitchum. Mitchum is, I love him. I think he's a great actor. He was definitely one of my favorite people to watch. Uh, really, just act his heart out in this. I mean, Sean Connery is in it, and we. There's still a point where we he is introduced, and then time significant chunk of time passes, and then we see him again. So the film tries to maintain some kind of continuity, but only as a way to check in at the various big points in this particular battle and just before it. And it works well. 
for this kind of story. But oh my God, it goes on for so fucking long. More like the longest movie. What I kept thinking of this as is the biggest movie because it has all the stars, all the budget. This was like a $10 million film in 1962 money, which is a lot of goddamn money now. And, you know, they put a lot of time and effort into making this historically accurate. There's just so much going on with this movie. $10 million in 1944, and these calculators aren't 100% accurate. They just kind of generally keep up with inflation. But, you know, if you were trying to be accurate, there's other things you have to calculate. But generally speaking, $161 million budget. So, you know, about about as big as it gets. Pretty big. And this was the last big budget movie that was filmed in black and white. It was the, the highest grossing black and white movie until Schindler's List. Yep. Which is impressive. Unlike Cleopatra, though, it made its money back and then some. Oh, yes, yes. It was eventually a success. This was lucrative as fuck. Yes. So I warmed up to it, but initially I was like, oh, God, because I knew I was in for three hours. And it's like, you better not just be giving me three hours of vignettes with different people because I don't know that I can sustain that much interest unless it's going to be absolutely beautiful, which that is so much what saved it for me by the end. It, it kind of was that, though. It pretty much was the the three hours of vignettes. It is, but most of them feel like some of them have several bits, but a couple of them are just, there's a chunk in the beginning, then there's a chunk at the end. And, yeah. Or we see them a couple times. But there's a, there's a, there were a few, so like Henry Fonda, correct me if I'm wrong, like I didn't fall asleep, right? Like he just disappears. No, he doesn't. Where does he, he, like, I I know he comes back on the beach when, and he like makes it to the beach and he's got his cane with him and he's going. And then they're like, okay, we got to go inland. Do we see him again after that? I don't think we see him again after that point, but we do see. That's the second time we see him. We don't get a third. That's the second time we see him, but it's like not long after the first time we saw him. No, because it's more towards the center. Mm -hmm. We see him talk to Edmund O'Brien. And then we see him land. Right. And he's got his little bamboo cane. A thing that I was like, okay, sir. Okay. <laughs> but because Henry Fonda disappeared after that second time we saw him, I got really worried that I was not going to see Richard Burton again. And I was like, you're not going to just have Richard Burton drink a beer and then go home, right? Like, we get more Richard Burton, don't we, movie? I'm sorry. Let me be the audience surrogate again here and remind you. Who the fuck is Richard Burton again? <laughs> I'm sorry. Richard Burton, the uh, the too old to be his role RAF pilot okay. who's drinking the beer in the right. bar, who is like the last one of the guys from the Battle of yes. Britain. Okay. Right. And then he shows up again, having shot the guy who has the boots on oh, the wrong Yeah, seat. we got to get to that yes. later because I was like, what the fuck Flying is Officer here? David Campbell is his character name. All right. So before we continue to confuse people any further with this intro where we're jumping around all over the place. Let me just do a really brief contextualized history here so that we know what they're trying to depict here. As a note, for anyone who's listening and this is a new episode or you just started listening to the podcast, we're not a history podcast, so we try and do that part justice with the help of our researchers, but we're really here to talk more about the film and the filmmaking. Uh, That being said, we did go into the Normandy landings and D-Day quite a bit on Saving Private Ryan. So if you want a little more detail, you can go back, listen to that episode, go to our surplus ordinance on our website. 
and read all of the research that doesn't make it into the episode. And I will include, there's several maps that I found online that contextualize this really well. So this is just an overview, but you can certainly read up more on this and give yourself a little bit more background. So our resident army officer and historian on the show, Micah Nadorfler, who actually had a minor in German, which I forgot about. So that's cool. He can also help us when we have problems with German language stuff. He gave us a little overview here. First of all, he says, for the most part, the film, the scenes in the film are fairly accurate. There is a whole list of goofs. I read through all of them. You can find things that they screwed up, but it's not really any more than Saving Private Ryan screwed up, just kind of different things. And we can get into that a little bit later. Did have a note here that I never thought about that D-Day is a military term that refers to the day on which an operation will start. It doesn't actually mean the Normandy invasions. June 6th was known as D-Day because it was the day that Operation Overlord, the actual named operation that was the invasion of Normandy, began. You have Operation Overlord, which is all this, including the shelling, the aerial attacks, the landings. You have Market Garden, which happened later and was a more inland invasion of Europe from what I can remember, but we'll get there when we get to that. So here's a little bit of background on what's going on at the beginning of the film and and through the invasion. Planning for the invasion began in 1943. The Soviets have been pushing for an allied invasion of Central Europe since 1941, but Churchill refused because he did not feel that Britain and America had amassed enough combat power to conduct a successful invasion. The British initially wanted the main invasion of Central Europe to be made via the Mediterranean, but the Americans and French pushed for an invasion via the English Channel into France. Dwight Eisenhower was named Supreme Allied Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, and our old friend... Bernard Montgomery, old Monty, was named commander of the Allied ground forces for the invasion. And there are a lot of French names in here. I did study French in high school, but like be lenient with And me. you love French. That's your favorite yes, language. It's my favorite place in the world. Uh, so I'll do my best with the pronunciation, but it's not going to be perfect. Dan loves the French and their bread. So the Allied planners narrowed down the invasion location to Pas-de-Calais and Normandy. It was decided that Pas-de-Calais would be too well defended because it was home to a major port. Normandy did not have a major port, which would be necessary to sustain the invasion, but it was located close enough to ports that they could be secured in the subsequent days after the initial landings. The Allies used the experience they gained from conducting the African and Mediterranean landings and raids on the French coast to plan the invasion. The initial draft plan called for the invasion to begin on May 1st, 1944, but Montgomery and Eisenhower insisted the plan be expanded to include more Allied troops, which required the invasion to be postponed until June to allow the production and acquirement of more landing craft. The final plan called for a multiple-phase operation. The major phases included an extensive bombing campaign prior to the invasion to degrade German supply capability and destroy equipment, an airborne landing the night prior to the beach landings. American and British paratrooper and glider infantry units would land at key locations to secure bridges, towns, and destroy enemy artillery units, all with the intent of degrading the German ability to resupply their frontline units and affect the Allied landings with reinforcements and artillery fire. And finally, the beach landings themselves. There would be five main beaches. Omaha, Utah, Gold, Juno, and Sword, and those are actually, if you look at the map, those are west to east, split between the American and Commonwealth forces. The beach landings would be simultaneously supported by mass naval bombardment and close air support. 
Like I said, the beaches were west to east. Utah, Omaha, Gold Juno, and Sword. As you could see in Saving Private Ryan, where they talk about dog sector green or something like that, each of these beaches was also split up into smaller sectors, and you can go look that up. It's all over uh, maps. The two American landings were all in, were both in the west. That was Utah and Omaha. That was under General Bradley in the 1st Army, and that included U.S. 7th Corps, 4th Division, you know, lots of numbers. I'm not going to read all of them off. One thing to note that we know about from Saving Private Ryan is Omaha Beach was the biggest shit show in terms of casualties. And on the first day, there were around 5,000 casualties on Omaha Beach. Second place finisher would be Gold Beach with 1,100, and the others were less than 1,000. So five times more casualties on Omaha than the other beaches. And then, like we said before, General Dempsey from 2nd Army was in charge of the Commonwealth landings, Gold, Juno, and Sword. And those were mostly British with the Canadian 3rd Infantry as well. And then another thing that's missed on these beaches, but if you look at a map, you'll see the Cotentin Peninsula, which is a north-south running peninsula just to the west of Normandy. The airborne landings were supposed to happen there. So the U.S. 82nd and 101st Airborne. The 101st Airborne is easy to remember because they have that that eagle's head on their symbol and they're the screaming eagles. Mm -hmm. And uh, you see them, you know, there's like adopted highways and they're obviously still a unit now. I don't remember all the numbers and names of these units, but the 101st is pretty famous. So it was uh, the 82nd, I think. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That kind of covers the landings to break down a few of the events that we'll actually see in the film. We're not going to do a play by play on the chronology here because there's a lot going on and we really just want to talk about the making of the film. But you see the British glider missions to secure Pegasus Bridge. That was pretty fucking sweet. That was really cool and different. And we can talk about that. The U.S. paratrooper counterattacks at St. Mary Gleese inland. Both of those filmed at the real locations. Not not everything in the film was, but those two were. You see some French resistance and SOE sabotage. We get to see a train getting blown up. That's Again. pretty similar to uh, our Charlotte Gray episode. Super awesome. Yeah. The faint at Pas de Calais. So Pas de Calais is uh, way on the northeastern end of where France and Britain face each other. It's the nar- most narrow place be- on the channel. Yeah. It's the narrowest place between France and England on the channel. So the right. Germans fortified the hell out of that and thought that the allies were going to come there. That is where we did the feint. So we faked them out that we were going to land there by doing that fake paratrooper drop and all that. You see that scene. And then the main invasion was in Normandy. No, I think, it, and I and I could be wrong, but Calais... I feel like there's like a lot of history there between Britain and France as far as like the number of times that in their history that they have been at war. I feel like Calais has been a sometimes contested area. I'll bet you're right. So that makes sense that that would be like, oh, well, this is where Britain always comes to France. Right. Well, and again, logistically, it's just there's less time that your ships are vulnerable to enemy attack while they're on the water. All those troops can get sunk, the elements. Yeah. So it makes sense. But of course you want to also not go across in the most obvious place where everyone's waiting for you with years of entrenched positions and time to build fortifications the way the Germans, we know the Germans were really good at doing. And then in Normandy, you have a couple of different locations. We have the U S Ranger assault group at point to Hawk which was also filmed at the real location. That's a that's a little bump 
on the western side of Normandy. The Free French Forces attack at Wistrem. I think that's how you say that. That was filmed somewhere else in France, I believe. And then the Omaha Beach landings were filmed at Salecha Beach in Corsica, where the 6th Navy actually helped out a lot because they were in that region and they lent a lot of, the DOD lent a lot of ships to the, to the actual film. And of course, one of the similarities you see in terms of geographical inaccuracies for the places that are standing in for Normandy is that the beach at Selecha is really narrow, just like the beach in Ireland where they filmed Saving Forever Ryan. And we know from that episode that the actual beaches at Normandy had about a mile between the water and the bluff. And Right. They didn't have these guys getting mowed down when they were getting out of the boats, but right. I'm sorry. I don't want to speak for the entirety of Normandy, but we know that Omaha beach specifically had like a mile of sand and obstacles and all of that. And that's one of the reasons why uh, the U S took so many casualties there. Although I will say I took some heat for saying that it was funny that they put all those things up that people could take cover behind. (laughs) I know I caught some flack for that, but all I'm saying is that when you get off the boat and you make it onto the beach, Where are you going for cover? Right. I thought the same thing. (laughs) Comparisons are going to come up several times with Saving Private Ryan in this. I do want to say that for the most part, the log ramps were facing the correct direction in this film. I saw that too. Another fucking thing that Spielberg could have looked at him and like, see the way Uh, these are facing? Know how a bunch of people who actually landed at Normandy, you know, helped make this film? Maybe you should pay attention to that. And they even had, if you paid attention, they had some vertical poles with actual what looked like mines on the end of them. And I was like, oh shit, I read about those, but I never saw them in Saving Private Ryan. And they actually did that here. So that as well, as another thing that this movie does a little more accurately is kind of the grand scale of things. The time frame is also like they got on the beach and within 20 minutes we're bringing in the uh, Bangalore torpedoes to like bust their way through. In this, it's like, holy shit, we've been here for literally hours. We can't do anything. Then Mitchum shows up and he was like, bring in the Bangalore torpedoes. And I'm like, thank you, Robert Mitchum. It's like, just throw it all at it. We can talk about some of the people who were at D-Day who were in this movie. Richard Todd. I'm trying to find the other guy. guy Richard Todd's story is pretty cool. So he's part of the uh, Pegasus. While, while Liam's looking up another one, I could tell this one. But Richard Todd was part of the Pegasus Bridge attack in the gliders. And he was just a trooper in real life when that happened. And I think they offered him the chance to play himself and just play one of the troopers. And he was like, "Eh, at this point in my career, I better take the Major Howard role because it's a bigger role and it'll look better. And obviously there's more speaking parts. Yeah, I'd like the bigger role, please. Yeah. The funny part is there's a scene with a soldier who one of the paratroopers comes up to him to tell him something about reinforcements or the bridge. I can't remember exactly what he said. That's who he was playing opposite a guy playing him. Exactly. That soldier was playing Richard Todd's role while Richard Todd played Major Howard. I'm like, well, that's a trip. Right. Did he, did he give him pointers? It's like, no, dude, I didn't say it like that. I said it like this. I sincerely hope so. Well, Richard Todd did wear his actual beret that he wore in the D-Day invasion. Right. I loved that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, there were a couple of those different kinds of moments. And- yeah, there were there were definitely several instances of that in the trivia. I'm sure it happened even more than what's written down, simply because you're closer to the actual time period. And so there's going to be more surviving equipment and stuff. My favorite little thing that I read in this is that Eisenhower offered to play himself. He's like, oh, I can be me. And they were like, 
sir, I'm sorry, but you're uh, you're too old, too old. And he had he had already been president at this point, right? Yes. So it's like a former president playing himself as a general. Well, I don't know. Uh, uh, Schwarzenegger went back to being the Terminator after being governor. I'll be back. That's not the same thing. He started as an actor. It's still weird. The makeup. We we have to blame the makeup of the time because that was their justification was that they felt they couldn't make him look like the Eisenhower of the time. I was like, I'm pretty sure people wouldn't have cared and just would have liked to see Eisenhower, especially in this this movie that is so just basking in the idea of the nobility of being a soldier and contributing to this war. If you liked this movie, you would have liked seeing uh, Eisenhower play himself, I think. Well, and they threw accurate age with the actors out the fucking window pretty early on with several of these people. So it's like, that's kind of a weird excuse. Oh, God. Right? Yeah, I think like John Wayne was older than the guy who he was playing. The guy he was playing was younger than John Wayne at the time it was filming than John Wayne was. Right. Right. Just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And and. Everyone was pissed about that. And we'll talk more about John Wayne in this particular film. But like, even at the time, people were like, this is bullshit. The real dude was disappointed that John Wayne played him. Later on, it was looked upon as like a mistake casting John Wayne just because of the age difference. I will say, though, good job on them finding Henry Grace, the quote unquote actor who plays General Eisenhower, because he was a set dresser i think he wasn't an actor so he did a good job delivering those lines but he was a dead ringer for eisenhower so that's why they picked him right i looked at him and i was like i wonder if that's actually him they got a real good eisenhower in there i wanted to throw in a little bit of trivia on the equipment since we were talking about you know being much closer to the time of these landings people having some of their own personal equipment that they brought into the film if you look at the trivia it says that while they were clearing a section of normandy beach near Point to Hawk, the crew unearthed a tank that had been buried in the sand since the original invasion. Mechanics cleaned it off, fixed it up, and it was used in the movie as part of the British tank regiment. <laughs> You're not doing that shit nowadays. No. It's amazing. They're like, hey, look at this shit. Perfect. No, they did have to find some Messerschmitts. Hard time finding some of those. And the gliders, they actually had to go back to none of those were in existence anymore, but the company that made them still was. So they had to go back and get them to make some new ones to use. Yeah, they were like exact replicas. But it looks like I'd heard this elsewhere, but this is from the IMDb trivia. As a 22 year old private, Joseph Lowe landed on Omaha Beach on D-Day with the Second Ranger Battalion and scaled the cliffs at Pont du Hoc. He scaled those 100-foot cliffs all over again for the cameras 17 years later. Yeah, another example of a location where they filmed it at the actual location. Right, but it was also a guy who was doing the thing that he did at D-Day for the movie. How bizarre must that have been? Right. Also, was anyone expecting a, like, Batman moment in this film where they're, like, literally shooting grappling hooks up the cliffs? And I was like... Well, those are a real thing. I'm like, wow, this is like the Batman gadget, but in real life, like those are pretty sweet. Yeah, they they really go all in on the detail of this, which is both a blessing and a curse. Because at certain points, I mean, because this movie is about three hours long, and I did not know that going into it too. When I sat down, I like look at the thing. I'm expecting like two plus, oh, and I was like three God. hours. Like son of a bitch. What is this? The Batman. Yeah, exactly. And D-Day doesn't start in in meaning 
they don't land at Normandy until two hours into right. the movie. So they are two thirds of the way through this shit before we even get to the big combat scenes. And there's a lot of stuff going on that gives us kind of the preamble. We get the paratroopers. We get the paratroopers. We get the initial German side's hesitation about, okay, well, is this the invasion? Is it not? We get to see more than one guy who's just like, nah, you don't know what you're talking about. This isn't the invasion. You're being dramatic. To their own detriment, obviously. We get to see... We get to see Salminio die tragically again. <laughs> exactly. We get to see them, like, the the boredom of the men who are waiting on the boats. Just, well, somebody decides whether or not they're actually going to go in. So, it spends a lot of time prepping us for this invasion and laying a lot of groundwork that, by the end, it does not all pay off. Right. I'm going to just say it. It does not all pay off. I'm going to use a Katie catchphrase here and say, this is the perfect opportunity for me to bring up. <laughs> Speaking of pacing and boredom, I wanted to ask you guys if and when you found yourself being bored watching this film, because I was curious whether that would happen in a three hour black and white film from 1962 for me. Apparently, pundits at the time called the film Z-Day. So I'm assuming that's a reference to them falling asleep. Yeah, it was. Yeah, because that was before Xanax. So, right. So what did you guys think in general about the pacing and like the, I don't know, watchability in general of the film? God, it really stretches it out. It is at times like painful to watch, but I felt that less and less as we got into the story. In the beginning, it is just plotting. And they also blow their load at the end. I mean, they do the Normandy landing at the oh. end as opposed to saving for Ryan doing it right at the beginning. <laughs> so there's an argument there that would be that's the way to do it, I guess. I the whole point of the film isn't what comes after Normandy. It's it's the it's the Normandy invasion. So that being mm-hmm. the climax of the film makes sense. But it is at certain points torturous getting there because it's just it's too much trying to encapsulate it all. Okay. It wasn't just me. <laughs> there were times where I was dozing off like, man, what is happening? No, 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 it, it wasn't you. I think this movie in 1962, I think this movie was a huge hit because it was the best treatment of the material that you could have possibly asked for at the time. As far as like the first movie that's really going to get D-Day right, mm-hmm. this movie really nailed it for people that... This is a recent memory for them. Yes. And they're doing it with all of the biggest male stars of the time. In a time when star power really meant something. Yeah, this was still in the studio era. Studio era was winding down, but it was still like you still went to go see a person do a thing. Which, you know, you'd go see a movie just because John Wayne was in it. Or you'd just go see a movie because Robert Mitchum was in it or you'd just see a movie because Henry Fonda was in it. And you put all of those stars together, and it's like, wow, all of these people are in it? That has to be worth seeing. It has to be the most amazing movie ever. So I think it was a big hit, and it was kind of like you ever... I don't know if you guys remember. Do you remember, like, back when 12 Years a Slave was in pre-production? Yes. And, like, the cast list first dropped on IMDb? Yes. And you were like, Jesus Christ, who isn't in this movie? It was kind of like that, but bigger. So I think that in the time, 
seeing those faces, doing those things that the audience had actually gone through was enough. And it didn't need a more compelling story than that. It didn't need something where you were like drawing people in with things like character development. Yeah. You know, just, just it being about the thing that it was about was enough. Think like the world trade center or United 93 coming out after nine 11. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a good segment of the population for those movies that was like, I don't want to watch a nine 11 movie. Right. But it was still like, these were the first movies to come out to address it. And so they kind of just had to address it. Yeah. I think this is such a product of its time and it works depending on probably number one, how familiar you are with the time period. And then there's another level of how familiar you are with the actors and creators of the time period and the art form. And the other aspect of this that we haven't really talked about is so at this time, the cold war is hardcore brewing. It is a huge aspect that plays into the making of this film because there was a because the DOD was heavily involved in in making this. They certainly gave a lot of support. They approved. Right, right. They they gave a lot of support for this film. But that is part of the reason why the Germans are portrayed with kid gloves. That's exactly what I was thinking, especially in this kind of film. Germans are not especially like just average everyday soldiers. They were so often portrayed as much more brutal and violent characters. Fanatical. Well, and I mean, at at this point in the war, the Germans were all like blitz to the tits on methamphetamines. There was so much <laughs> meth going around at this point that it was it was insane. That's why he had to take sleeping pills to sleep because he was jacked up on meth all day. And by sleeping pills they they meant literal opium. That is what he was doing. I, there's an amazing sure, book about right. it that gave me a whole new perspective on World War II. Wake the Fuhrer up. If you can tell me how, I'd gladly right? do and it. And if you want to deal with his ass. <laughs> So there was a lot of pressure to make all aspects of this war appealing and give everyone, every side, their nobility. You know, it never touches on some of the more horrific aspects of war. Mm -hmm. And it lets most of the German generals, you know, have their good scenes. Also, crazy thing to think about is the vast majority of the men who are portraying those German generals would all have been of fighting age during World War II. So more than Hmm. likely, most of them were vets. Yeah. One example of this, Katie, is that uh, most of the German soldiers posted to Normandy at the time would have been young boys from the Hitler Youth and old men from reserve regiments. Oh, yeah. They were already so far down on troops at this point. (laughs) Right. And they were stripped. But also, you know, a lot of the troops were at Pas de Calais, where they thought the Allies were actually going to land, where it was way more reinforced. Like, Normandy wasn't all that well defended because they didn't think the Allies were going to land there. And one of the things that Allied veterans would report is being haunted and having PTSD from the teenage boys that they had to kill as a part of this invasion. So that's an example of sort of um, whitewashing isn't the right word, but of, of, yeah, making things more tame for the audience when really the experience for the soldiers who were 
part of the invasion was a lot rougher. So Kurd Jurgens, yes, yes, played Major General Gunther Blumentritt. Sweet name. I'm sure my pronunciation is not stellar there, uh, but Kurd Jurgens was actually in prison during World War II. Oh. So All he right. did not, he was of age to serve. He just skipped the whole war. He was in prison as a politically undesirable person oh, for nice. his outspoken ah. opposition to the Nazi party. Wow. Uh, so he was in a concentration camp when shit was going down. But he agreed Jesus. to play a Nazi officer. That's interesting. Well, and that's not, so here's the thing is that that's not uncommon. If you, if you look at Conrad Veidt. Mm-hmm who was not in this picture, but he was huge German film star in the silent era. He was the man who laughed, which inspired the Joker. Right. That's where I know him from. Mm -hmm. He fled Germany when Hitler came to power and made a career in Hollywood of making Nazis look as fucking terrible as he possibly could. Mm. So he played like, if you think of a, a evil Nazi in a movie in 1940s. Oh, interesting. It was played by Conrad Veidt, and he did that on fucking purpose. Right. So instead of not wanting to have anything to do with it, he actually wanted to make them look as bad as possible. No, he was like, put me in, coach. I'm ready. Let's play. He was in Casablanca. He did a lot of movies with Humphrey Bogart, always playing an evil Nazi. Hmm. He was Major Strasser in Casablanca, for those who are keeping score at home. Oh, and see, that's the that's the different thing is that because they wanted, you know, to bring in the West German audience, mm-hmm. that is why they very much softened everything with the German forces. I mean, even the uh, the two pilots, right, who are sent to Normandy, like, oh, just go, you're fine, just do what you can. You know, they are portrayed pretty heroically in in heroic cinematic terms if you Mm -hmm. will how they are shot their dialogue all of that right and and they go and they are literally bombing the the and shooting on on the beaches Mm -hmm. but we never get up close we never show the costs no we never get to see them killing our boys and at the end they're still portrayed as like some kind of sad hero and it's just kind of if you've seen a lot of war movies from the 40s and early to mid 50s, it feels so at odds with the kind of depiction you typically get of the Germans in these kind of films. Which is kind of fascinating because in the end, it's not really a knock on the movie because it kind of inadvertently corrects things back to a little more neutral place. And while there are plenty of historical examples where you don't have to try and make a Nazi out to be a villain, because if you're talking about, for example, the head of the camp in Schindler's list, who is this sadistic Nazi who like takes pot shots at prisoners just because he feels like it and whatever, which Amon Guth, thank you, who I'm sure is based on a real person if not the character, like on examples of that. I think when we talk about things that are further away from concentration camps, from Stalingrad, from like where shit was really hitting the fan and the Germans were in dire straits uh, and the Nazis had more of a presence and were oppressing civilians there. Not to say that that didn't happen in Normandy or Northern France, but like we're talking about a more tactical 
strategic military role here. And so really, like, there's not that much of a difference between the the German soldiers portrayed behind the machine guns in this film and the ones portrayed in Saving Private Ryan. It's like a somewhat neutral, they're the enemy, we have to kill the enemy. But they're not, for most scenes, they're not made out to be this really bad guy. Or, or like Katie was saying, the pilots, you don't really see any of the carnage of the results of them strafing the beach and it, they don't really like hate Americans, right? They seem like they're kind of just Air Force pilots doing their job during the war. They're more irritated with the upper command. Not being able to sleep. Yeah, the the problem is, is that they, so the, the officers in this movie don't even like Hitler. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, they're so, they're so frustrated with him. Yeah, and, and there are some things that I was like, I don't know if that's a thing you would have said out loud. That thing you just said. At this point in the war, they might not have said it out loud to each other, but they absolutely would have been thinking it. I'm sure they'd be thinking it. But I mean, like, you're just going to tell your, like, second in command Hitler's a fuck up. Right. That guy is going to have your job in 10 seconds when he rats you out. Yeah. There's the point where I'm not even going to try and remember which German general this is, but he's the guy with the sort of blonde Hitler mustache. Like it's lighter colored. So it's not as stark, but it's like a tight mustache like that. And at one point he calls him like that little corporal. The Yes. Yep. He, he calls him the Bavarian corporal because he's. He's insulting his German heritage. Right. He's not truly German like this guy is. Well, and he's not Prussian aristocracy, right? That's it. Yes. He's not Aryan, even. Like, he's got brown hair and brown eyes. Sure. (laughs) And, and like, we don't want to get too into the intricacies of German pre-World War II culture at the time, because I don't think anyone here has done the research and prepared. Like, I know we've all read about it, but I don't want to misspeak this isn't the film for that anyway yeah but generally this was a thing prussians were the old school aristocracy they were all the leadership cast in world war one and to have someone who became chancellor and ran germany who wasn't even an officer in the war when he served in world one right again he was a corporal like they're kind of like two like who is this guy and this will come up when we cover for every new judgment at Nuremberg, they talk about it a good bit. Oh, there are so many movies to talk about this, but yeah. Right. And this is and this is one of the criticisms. I think when Friendly Fire did Valkyrie, this is a good criticism that they brought up. I think that was it too. Where they were saying one of the flaws of that film is that it shows the plot against Hitler as sort of like the good Nazis wanting to get rid of Hitler. And it's kind of like, well history is a little more complicated than that. And it's weird that they made that choice because although Stauffenberg himself may have not been an anti-Semite and may have been kind of one of the better Germans in the aristocracy, the coup and the people that who were working with him to depose Hitler, they were fine with the Holocaust. They were fine with what Germany was doing. They were fine with getting rid of Jews. They just didn't want Hitler in charge and they wanted their, you know, Prussian aristocracy in charge. It was a power struggle. Right. He was fucking everything up. Exactly. I mean, from Dunkirk onwards, like from the actual events at Dunkirk onwards, Mm. Hitler showed his absolute failure as a commander through throwing temper tantrums, Mm -hmm. often drugged out of his mind temper tantrums, honestly. What we like to call Kylo Renning. 
<laughs> yes. And Norman Oller's book, Blitz, talks about this, about how it very much affected Hitler's decision making because he was just on this cycle of uppers and downers, uppers and downers every day. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he had just reached insanity. Right. And they talk about that a little bit, about how, oh, the Fuhrer threw one of his tantrums and we still don't get the panzers. And it's like, well, you can see how a a military man who's not hyped up on drugs and wants the success of this campaign is like, I'm so frustrated with it. And It's like being the one sober dude at the party. Yeah. Right. And it's just that level of incompetence and stupidity of... Jesus Christ, you guys, can you just make up your goddamn mind? And that's where they were at at this point in Germany with the, okay, well, I mean, he's sleeping. He's sleeping right now. We're not gonna, we're not gonna interrupt him. It's just so outrageous. Yeah. However, let me just uh, clarify the record a little bit on the whole Hitler sleeping part of the situation, because it's a little bit exaggerated in the film. And Micah points it out as one of the first sort of historical inaccuracies. It is true that Hitler did go to sleep late the night prior and slept late until around 10 a.m. on 6 June. It's also true that his staff decided not to wake him up prior to 10 a.m. because they were afraid that the information that was filtering its way from Normandy to Germany was scanty and possibly misleading. It's not the case that they knew the Normandy landings were the main invasion and that they simply were too afraid to wake him up. Additionally, he goes into some reasons why uh, getting armor reserves to Normandy would not have been as simple and as easy as the film makes it out to be. Just take these tanks over there. It's fine. And you can read that for yourself when you go into the surplus ordinance. Uh, uh, Micah describes because of where they had staged the reserves, how it was unlikely that even had had they woken Hitler up and had he given the order, it would have been very unlikely that they would have gotten tanks to that area in time to really be effective. Okay, so before we go any further, I want to talk about the fucking comedy that is in this movie because there are so many points that I was like when he mistakes the rifle the rifle action for the for the cricket clicker that's hilarious is this being played for laughs some of it is yeah there's so many points like uh, the red buttons character which is a actor's name red buttons that wasn't his birth name I'm assuming right it, not his birth name, but that's his that's his name. name. Stage like name. That's right. That's his that's his name. That's what everybody knew him as. And, right. and I think um, as he got older, he was more known as Red. I swear to God, I remember old comedy videos about a guy named Red who looked an insane amount like George W. Bush. Which yeah, no, it's Red Buttons. Gotta say, every time he came up on screen, I was like, is, wait, is that? No, GW wasn't even born at this point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not. It's not Red. It's Red. Red Buttons. Red buttons, yes. So he has this almost Gomer Pyle level. He's the one who got stuck on the church. Oh, this scene. He's in several scenes. <laughs> that church has a replica of him hanging from a parachute from that church. Yep. Now, right? You can go to that church and see it now. Yeah, like now. Like you can go to the church That's and you can awesome. see him hanging up there. I think, yeah, it's kind of hilarious, but glad he's okay. God, how terrible would that be? Like, I I get it. I get how they play off his scenes of in just the weirdest way. And some of it's dark comedy. Some of it is just straight up slapstick. In particular, the scene where 
Richard Beamer where he's met up with, I think it's the 101st at that point, mm-hmm. and they are walking along the trail and there's a cobblestone wall that's about hip height between them and they see another group of soldiers and for the life of me i was like okay my 2022 self can tell those helmets are fucking german soldiers and and they just think oh no it's fine and they walk alongside oh yeah that scene was ridiculous i'm like who would ever make that mistake and no one but that guy at the very end catches that they are german soldiers including all of the german soldiers like it's just played for these ridiculous laughs now here's the thing though that's one of those things that like so for it was like Marx Brothers level type scene. I want to I want to clarify, like, I'm not criticizing it. But it's like Grandpa's goofy story. Exactly. Like, you know what I mean? Exactly. And I talked about this in one of my one of my intros where I had to interview a veteran for a for an English class assignment. And I chose to interview my grandfather to ask him about his time in World War Two. And he shut me down so hard, like would not tell me a goddamn thing. And like we had this list of questions and I remember distinctly one of them was like, cause it was the question that like everybody got a good answer to who had to do this report. And it was like, were there any like humorous anecdotes that you had from your time in the service? And like, they were all right. like weird, goofy shit like that. And it was like, of course, pop was like, no, <laughs> dead ass. Like you ask me again and I will stop talking to you. No, there were no humorous anecdotes from my time in the service. It was like, all serious. It was just Stop no, it. like he was just like, I never, never like he, I didn't laugh for four years. Nothing good to say, but like, this sounds like something that like that guy would go back and tell his kids about that time that he was in yeah. D day and he walked past all these German officers, you know, like, so I don't think it didn't happen, but it does. It does look goofy as fuck. I think it stretches well, here's fragility. The thing is I, it, like they pass three feet away from each other. Like all of Grandpa's stories, it's such a, a <laughs> thing of its time. Like if you tried to include that stuff in something like Saving Private Ryan or a more modern film, it would fall so flat. But in this era, in this kind of movie, it does kind of work. I think mostly because of who they have taking on those roles. And their facial expressions and the type of actor they are. Like, I'm fairly certain that all, all of the guys who play those roles were already doing comedic acting. So they are sending that uh, message to the audience. So the audience is expecting a comedic bit out of them. And us as viewers who are, you know, decades and decades and decades later, we don't get that because we don't generally know who these people are. So, you know, we know Robert Mitchum, but red buttons who the fuck knows who that is so <laughs> some of us know who red buttons is i'm just saying I mean, some of us do know who red buttons is i was trying to be funny <laughs> sorry do you have any other jokes i can step on for you the other question i had for you that i think is is totally uh unintentional is what the hell is up with these subtitles i watched this on amazon and i was like I feel like I'm only getting like two thirds of the story here because like the Germans will be talking to each other and you get like one subtitle and they go on for like two more sentences. You get nothing. And the subtitle is like, I answered the phone and they kept talking for a good like 30 seconds. And I was just like, oh, my God, what's happening here? Why? I think that's a, a thing with like 
this was the first mainstream Hollywood film to do that. Mm. And they didn't want to tax American audiences. I could see that. So just like give them like fucking give them the crib sheet. Like this is basically all you need to know that they're saying. I think Liam's right on here because another good example of this. Micah made a point to point this out again because he speaks German, but he said it's interesting how the director chose to subtitle the Germans. They leave lots of dialogue out that helps develop some of the German characters and provides nuance. The subtitles do a good job of conveying the bottom line meaning, but do a poor job of conveying tone and personality. He thinks it would have been a lot more interesting to the viewer if more thorough subtitles had been used. I think a good example is when one of the soldiers, I think he's talking about shooting some Germans. I wonder what bitter bitter means. I'm pretty sure any soldier that was going into Normandy around that time is going to know the meaning of the word please in German. Like, what are the three things you learn in a foreign language when you're going to another country? It's like, please, thank you. Yes, no. Where's the bathroom? bathroom. I mean, those aren't wartime things, but still, like, they're interacting with the population. Eventually, you're going to be interacting with German civilians at some point, assuming the Allies get that far. So I I thought that was a stretch, but I think... It it called back to me to that scene in uh, Saving Private Ryan. When the guys are coming out and they're like, no, we're not, we're not Germans. We're, we're Czech. Czech. Right. I think it it was that same kind of scene, but different. Sure. Except that there it's believable that, and whatever, those soldiers probably were going to shoot those guys no matter what they said. However, it's believable that some American GIs wouldn't understand Czech, let alone German, especially a more complicated sentence. But I think uh, the point I'm making is that the the whole thing of him going, what does bitta mean? He's doing that for the audience. I don't think it's right. realistic for the character. Right. Yeah. The uh, Well, and also, they did film two versions. They did shoot a version oh, where yeah. everybody's speaking in English. Right. English, and there were yeah. no subtitles. But it was generally considered to be the inferior version. And you'd never see it anymore. Right. Well, I can understand that because I can see how the body language, because not a not insignificant amount of these actors had been in silent films. So they were at a bigger advantage than, say, modern actors would be where they are very clearly able to communicate with their facial expressions and body language. And like they're speaking a very slow German because mm-hmm. my you know high school German I was able to identify like okay this is what they're saying in some of the bits anyway mm-hmm. and I don't think it's necessary to have the dialogue but I do think it would have provided us with more context but I don't know that the context is needed to get something more out of the film If you're a fan of movies that are true stories, I've got a new podcast recommendation for you. It's called Based on a True Story, and it is the podcast that compares Hollywood with history. You'll learn from historians, authors, TV and film consultants, and sometimes even the real people the movies are based on as they separate fact from fiction in your favorite movies. Hear how much of the gangster movie Donnie Brasco happened from the real Donnie Brasco himself. Listen to the real history behind Downton Abbey from Lady Carnarvon. Laugh along with the real guys that the comedy movie Tag was based on. Get some extra stories from the production set from the historical consultant on the movie The Alamo. Those are just a few examples. So when you're ready to learn how much of your favorite movie really happened, 
Subscribe to Based on a True Story in your podcast app of choice or find it at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com. So did you guys see that the producer, Zanuck, was quoted in an interview talking about how he didn't think much of actors forming their own production companies, citing the Alamo from 1960, which John Wayne produced, and it was a failure. And Wayne found out about the interview before being approached for the film. And so while most of the other famous actors got like 25000 for their salary, John Wayne asked for and got $250,000 for his salary, which was obviously 10 times more than Henry Fonda or Robert Mitchum had gotten. Also to mention that he was only working on this movie for four days. Right. For shooting. Right. Almost all the dialogue is ADR, alternate dialogue recording. So he would have had to do at least a couple days beyond that. But still, for the 18 months of shooting that this took ain't much right and in four days he got the most money which sure i will go to bat for john wayne a little bit in in this there are plenty of bad things to say about john wayne all the time could go on for days from his personal politics to his personal behaviors to his to his acting to his acting but that's the point where i kind of want to get into it John Wayne is not a great actor. John Wayne is, however, a great movie star. Especially from this era. From from Stagecoach on. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at, like, John Wayne and Stagecoach, man, that camera loves that dude. Like, such a handsome, like, fuckable man. Just really, really, like, he's he, he glistens on the screen. He's got a presence, for sure. He d- surely does. And also, he figured out very early on that the slower he delivered his lines, the longer the camera had to stay on him. Oh, and screen time equals star power. Right. So he would specifically say his lines slower so that the camera had to stick with him longer. I I was really hoping that Liam was going to do it for that last sentence. (laughs) No, (laughs) I wasn't, but not just that it's all gamesmanship. And he's trying to, like, increase his screen time. He's not a great actor, but it is fairly difficult. And you can, like, comb through his movies. It's fairly difficult to find a line that he misdelivers. Right. You know what I mean? Like, the okay. lines, like, he he did put in a lot of, I, I don't know what the process was, but for lack of a better word, we'll call it table work, where you're just sitting with the script and you're like, okay, how am I going to say this one? How am I going to say that one? Right. He did put effort into his craft and he wasn't phoning it in. So to he, speak. yeah, he wasn't phoning it in. He did work. Was it usually the same character? Sure. Are there moments of brilliance? Absolutely. Like when he walks in, in the end of this movie, cause he's just being like John Wayne, John Wayne, John Wayne, John Wayne, John Wayne. And then he walks into what's the name of the town? St. Marie Glace, uh, St. Marie Iglese, I think. I think that's it. He he walks in and he sees all the paratroopers that are still hanging from like buildings and the trees that they like got caught in there and then got shot. Mm -hmm. There's like this moment and it's funny because there aren't lines, but like you just see the look on his face and he looks different. Yeah. He's horrified. He looks affected, you know, like it's, you, 
you can see it in his eyes. And that's not something that a shitty actor can do very easily. So that's my, that's my quick five minute defense of John Wayne. He is very aware of his body. He is, you know, he, he knows his craft and his craft isn't great, but he knows his craft and he does it well. And that ends my, like from here on, we shit on John Wayne all you want. Like I like a lot of his old movies. I grew up watching them. This is far from my first John Wayne. That's my, that's my two cents on John Wayne. Since this is our first time discussing John Wayne, I will reveal that the John Wayne movie that made the biggest impression on me as a child was my grandpa's favorite, McClintock, which is not the best. No. I'm just going to say, not the best. No, you got to go to like some man who shot Liberty Valance. He was great in that. Right. But I was like six and my my grandpa, who was obsessed with Westerns, Louis L'Amour, all of mm-hmm. that stuff, he, he, he sits me down and is like, all right, we're going to watch this. <laughs> Sit down, Katie. This is McClintock. <laughs> and usually it was my grandma who showed me movies and he was insistent. So I was like, oh, well, grandpa wants to watch a movie because he was like my favorite grandpa. So I sat there and watched it. And I remember thinking like, doesn't I don't I don't really care for this and I'm a child who who loved uh you know the unsinkable Molly Brown mm-hmm. as a kid <laughs> and seven brides for seven brothers for me McClintock I was like I don't it's a bridge too far for you I don't necessarily <laughs> like this but I'm gonna tell grandpa I really enjoy it because it'll make him happy <laughs> so that's John Wayne is inextricably linked with McClintock in my mind which <laughs> probably doesn't do a whole lot for John Wayne <laughs> But yeah, like, oh, you got to watch like The Quiet Man and... Yeah, John Wayne has his place for sure. Big Jake is better than McClintock. Oh, God, yeah. McClintock, I've seen a ton of John Wayne movies since then, but that's the one that like really (laughs) stuck out as the first, because I probably watched a bunch of other John Wayne movies with my mom, but like, I wasn't, I was always more interested in the ladies Mm -hmm. in those kinds of movies. Mm -hmm. So, and my mom always showed me movies with, uh, you know, very strong female presences in them. Angel and the so, Bad Man. Yeah, right. So, I'm sure I'd seen other ones, but that was the one that I remember because he's really over the top in McClintock. I think, doesn't McClintock end with an exclamation point? Like, isn't it McClintock? <laughs> it, does. it does. It absolutely does. And I, I, last time I checked, you could watch it for free on imdb.com. That's how. That's how stellar McClintock is. Exactly. Well, well, Dan, tell me, this was your first John Wayne. What were your impressions? Yeah. How did you feel about it? Was it pretty much what you expected? Was it different? Like, if you cut out everything in this movie that wasn't John Wayne, and you were like, oh, this is my first John Wayne movie, what, what were your impressions? I guess I'll say that it was interesting to recognize a bunch of stuff that I know about John Wayne, his voice, his mannerisms. It's interesting to see someone who's so famous and so culturally ubiquitous for the first time, but to actually watch a whole film with him. So, like, I recognized his voice and his manner of speaking from having watched clips of John Wayne or having watched other people pretend to be John Wayne, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen the impressions. I mean, Private Joker does it in uh, in our first <laughs> in our the first film we ever covered, Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, John Wayne? Is this me? Who said that? Who the fuck said that? So, yeah, I knew a lot about John Wayne. To be honest, I thought that he was more understated than I thought he was going to be. 
I didn't feel like he came in and took over the movie or was chewing up the scenery. I thought he acted like a colonel. And depending on who he was interacting with, he used the weight of his rank to be like, nah, just relax. Here's what we're doing. You go here, you go there, whatever, which is like appropriate. And to be honest, and this may be completely out of his control, and again, following real events and a real historical figure, I was surprised that they had the character of John Wayne break his ankle and then get trolleyed around on a cart for like the last part of the film because it's not the most manly looking thing you could be doing. Like he's literally commanding troops from like an ox cart while he's being carried but around. Technically at that point, hadn't he walked for five miles to meet up to get to the, I mean, the original sure, drop Sure, but you don't see a lot of We that. don't see it. Right. No, I, I agree. I, what I'm saying is if John Wayne, and I'm not saying I've heard these things, but if part of my internal impression of what I would expect John Wayne to do, like if I would think that he's some kind of narcissist that's, you know, really aware of his image and is only going to do certain types of roles and is only going to be like a man's man. I was surprised to see him laid out in a cart, kind of like barking orders from a seated position and having troops carrying him around and him not really participating in the fighting in that way. So yeah, if anything, I was surprised, I guess it, it, he didn't come off as John Wayne as I was expecting him to in this film. There's one last bit of trivia that I wanted to make sure I got to because I made a point to make a post about it in our group and people chimed in and had a lot of really great comments about this. But walking around or even assaulting up a beach with your helmet chin strap undone. We may have talked about this in Saving Private Ryan, but, you know, I had to edit an hour out of that episode because our conversation was so long. So I don't remember what made it in and what didn't. But I've always wondered about that because it's very easy to look at that and like, look at these Hollywood guys. For for one, the actual chin bucket that sits on that strap is gigantic if you look at it hanging off the actors. And I was like, yeah, if that was on John Wayne's face, it would like make him look kind of funny. And a lot of people bring that up as a Hollywoodism, even to the point where Micah says, even in the modern U.S. Army, if you try and do that, someone will be like, oh, look at John Wayne over here with his chin strap undone, right? Even though, again, we see this in Saving Private Ryan, we've seen it in lots of other films. There is this persistent story of a rumor at the time that American GIs especially, they actually did it for safety reasons because they thought that if you had your chin strap tightly securing your helmet to your head, if a concussive blast went by nearby, it could actually break your neck. And I asked Micah about this. Because I was curious whether, A, that was a real rumor among GIs, B, were they allowed to do it, did it happen, and C, is John Wayne taking something that's so culturally ubiquitous that he didn't even think about it and doesn't even know that it's a rumor? Is he trying to be realistic, or is it just a Hollywood thing where he doesn't want to have a thing on his chin while he's talking and looking good for the camera? So a lot of details there that I didn't know about, and... It turns out it was a real rumor and that depending on when and where you were serving, one of the examples, again, if you go to Danger Close uh, podcast discussion group on Facebook, you can find this post recently here. We're recording at the end of April. And there was even an order in one particular army unit that explicitly told soldiers to not secure their chin straps because they had found dead bodies in the Mediterranean in North Africa who had died and and had their chin straps secured and their necks were broken. And so they actually, now 
The one thing I don't know is if there's any truth to that physically, if that ever happened. Later on, they actually designed a pressure release chin strap where you could have still had it fastened. And if a concussion went off, it would have come off anyways. And so the point was kind of moot. But um, yeah, it turns out that there is some veracity to that rumor. So while John Wayne is certainly John Wayne it, and I think if the director had told him you need to wear that chin strap or, you know, you need to fasten that chin strap, he would have probably told him to fuck off. It's not 100% Hollywood. Yeah. The uh, the other thing that I, I thought was interesting about this was watching him and Robert Ryan play together again, uh, but with roles reversed. Uh, he was Robert Ryan's commanding officer in the Flying Leathernecks. Mm. And they, they mm. had like a lot of that good, good old fashioned, like superior and subordinate tension where like they Off, like COXO thing. Yeah. Like where they, they might get into a fist fight at any moment, kind of, kind of interplay there. So right. seeing them get along and like respect the, the rank was, was interesting. It was nice. We forgot to mention that Charlton Heston was slated to have that role. And then John Wayne decided that he could take it. So he bumped Charlton Heston out of the film, which is an interesting that's good i guess yeah that's good you can only have shitty people play that role i guess no no aspersions cast on the real <laughs> dude but <laughs> right like poor guy so the other delightful i guess delightful human beings uh, no no littering no, this not movie. delightful not delightful human <laughs> beings but um delightful random because this is this is actually this actor's first appearance on film it's sean connery is it his first no way it's not his first no this is his first wow this was right before he did dr no yeah man he got yes. to be famous right he, the fuck away. okay let me uh, now you y'all are making me doubt it, but I'm pretty sure because he got. I thought he got cast in this and did his role, and then well, then he went to go do Doctor No, but he had been in Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Oh God! Hey, hey, no, no, Darby O'Gill and the Little People. It's good. I've I've seen Darby O'Gill and the Little People. He doesn't need to be in it, but <laughs> I have seen it. So many times. Does he do an Irish accent? Does he attempt an Irish accent? No, he just sounds like himself. No. Right. No, Sean Connery didn't do accents. He did Sean Connery. He was, he was just Sean Connery. Yeah, it was a trip seeing Sean Connery in this because you can't unsee, you know, the dozens of Sean Connery movies and all the James <laughs> Bond films that you've seen since this came right. out. And, and he is so goofy in this. Right. And it's like he's in this bit role where he's supposed to be a nobody. And I guess he was at the time. He was, yeah. But he's like not a nobody to us, right? Yeah, no. So he had been in Tarzan's Greatest Adventure, a handful of like made-for-TV things, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, where he plays an Irishman. So we had this whole conversation, right, about the bagpipe scene. In the scene where Bill Millen comes in and plays the bagpipes as British troops march towards the Germans. Should we do a little mini bit on Bill Millen? We probably should. So, some Scotsman be, somewhere is going to be. He seems to be relatively famous. Well, he was he was never a Scotsman. So the real person Canadian. was Canadian. And the actor in this case, it was British. It turns out he has an official title, which I'd have to look up. But he was like basically the Queen's bagpiper, essentially. Yeah. Yep. He was the Queen's piper. Pretty cool. So, so in one of the scenes where he starts playing, there's Private Cloth and Sean Connery playing Private Flanagan. And Cloth says, There he goes. He's at it again. Did you ever hear such a bleeding racket in all your life? Yeah, it takes an Irishman to play the pipes. 
and it took me a second to figure out what the hell that meant, because I was like, wait, I thought the bagpipes were a Scottish thing? But Sean Connery's Scottish, but Flanagan sounds Irish, but the bagpipe player, I was just like, what the fuck is going on? I mean, his name is Flanagan. Mm-hmm. That's right, pretty fucking right. Irish. It is, yes. I think he's playing an Irish dude. Yeah, so... Yeah, and I- Irish folks do indeed have their own kinds of bagpipes. And that's the only way that that comment makes sense is he's an Irishman saying, oh, that guy can't play the bagpipes. Well, and here's the funny thing is that when you hear bagpipes in movies from Braveheart to like most of the time when you hear it in movies, it's actually the Irish Yulian pipes that's being played. Oh, right. It's not what they show, but it's what you hear. They they overdub it with Yulian pipes because the Yulian pipes sound better. It sounds smoother. It's more melodious. It has a bellows as opposed to the Scottish pipes, which are mouth. Yeah, there's you inflate the bag with with bellows under one arm, and mm. then you squeeze the bag with the other, and then you play the pipes. Uh, whereas with bagpipes, you blow into into it, but the 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 bagpipes sound rougher. It's got mm. a, a a a harder sound to it. So if you want that good like wailing like throwing a claymore through the air and then it lands perfectly in front of the enemy like like that kind of sound you want some alien pipes for that tommy makem the godfather of irish folk music had a had a line during a performance once where he was talking about he said there's always some interplay between the irish and the scots there's not animosity it's a good-natured ribbing you know we're we're teasing them they're teasing us we gave them the bagpipes and they still haven't got the joke <laughs> there seems to be some some question in the folklore as to who gave who the bagpipes. But yeah, so there is some some of the, like a little bit of like throwing of elbows here and there during the game between nice. the Irish and the Scots. So now it's time for the breakdown. It's that point in the show when we ask what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Katie, what do you got for us? The objective of this film. I think there's a couple different things going on, partially because, you know, Zanuck was so very dedicated to telling this story. And it was about giving World War II veterans of D-Day their moment and allowing the Many, many, many folks of Hollywood who had gone and contributed to the war effort, their moment in the sun as well. And not not even just Hollywood, but also like the Germans, the French, the British, like most of the folks who are in this were pulled from actual veterans in their various countries. And, you know, it tries to encompass as much of the D-Day story as possible and give us a, several different perspectives and kind of tries to play up not necessarily a sympathy but it doesn't just take their perspective of this is each individual acting out their life it's we see the germans as though we were german we see the british as though we were british where they are given sympathy and understanding and part of that is like we talked about, due to the Cold War and trying to, you know, bring us all, bring the Europeans and the Americans all together against the communist Russian forces. But I do think that a big part of it was genuinely about exploring the relationships between 
the Europeans on both sides of this conflict. Did it succeed? I think this is one that was probably, from the reviews I read, it was fairly successful at the time. Like, people liked it. It resonated with folks. And the kind of scattered, disjointed nature that we all talked about in this discussion was not very present in anything I read that was contemporary to release. Everybody kind of seemed to get it. And so I think if you went through World War II, whether you were at home or fighting abroad or dealing with the fight in your backyard, I think this film is going to work a lot better for those folks than it will for people now who these are, at this point, not even distant memories. The vast majority of folks who experience this are have sadly passed away. And this is straight up history for most people. So it's going to have diminishing returns, I think, unless you're a history buff or really into Hollywood royalty of this time period. I think then it's going to succeed for you a lot more. Did I like it? Yes and no. Yes, in that I am very familiar with, you know, the events. I'm very familiar with the actors in comparison to what most people my age are familiar with these actors. And obviously I'm into watching war movies. So for me watching this, I was kind of able to, for the most part, suspend my disbelief and just kind of go with it. The beginning is so much more tedious than the end. And it does definitely get better as you watch it. But it is overly long to an insane degree. And at times it is so frustrating. And I think part of that is probably my modern sensibilities of it's like, well, I would like an accurate translation of what the Germans and the French are saying. I would like to know exactly what's going on instead of, yeah, yeah, this is generally what they're talking about. Don't worry, you're fine, which is kind of how the film portrays it due to subtitles not really being a thing then. And sadly, if you watch it with current subtitles on, it did not go back and fill in the spaces for you, which I, I think it should. I mean, I would not watch it again, ever, or maybe suggest to anyone to watch it <laughs> unless this kind of thing is your jam. Kind of sorry I watched it this first time, but we'll move on. I'm not sorry I watched it. I feel like it was a very interesting thing to cover and to talk about with you guys. And to, if you don't want to watch it as someone who's listening to this podcast, I do not blame you, but it's definitely an artifact that's worth your time if this is some, a time period you're interested in. So I don't know if liking it is necessarily the criteria that we generally ascribe to it because it's more like it's like homework almost. It's like, oh, yeah, it's got a lot of good actors in it. It's got some amazing cinematography, which we did not cover on the in this, which it's a small part of it, honestly, because of how much other stuff is going on. But the cinematography, which did win an Oscar, is fantastic in the same way that 1917 is fantastic. And it is worth watching for the tracking shots alone. About two and a half hours through the movie, there's a there's a scene that comes up where we watch the shot. And I was like, all right, I'm glad I watched this movie just to experience this because it's so fantastic. But otherwise... It's a little meh. There's better World War II movies out there. Dan, what did you think? Yeah, so can't really disagree with Katie on anything she said here. 
I think the objective here was to do a, no pun intended, a big picture strategic level film depicting Operation Overlord as a whole and showing at least a little bit of perspective from Eisenhower all the way down to the lowest private. Again, there are things because of the time period and because of the style that depending on how old you are and what you prefer, I find, you know, Saving Private Ryan did a lot better, but there are also things that were not within the scope of Saving Private Ryan. It's much more tactical. It sticks to mostly these five characters, whereas this is jumping around a lot in something that, like we said before, might be better done in a book. And maybe the book is great, but a little bit difficult to translate into film. So, yeah, I mean, in 1962, this is a totally different experience, I think. And I think a lot of the things you're seeing on screen, you're seeing for the first time in 1962, other than archival documentary footage. And I'm sure that that was really impressive for the audience at the time. There are also things that this film did that something now could not do, like employ a bunch of veterans of World War II and specifically of the this invasion in the actual film. You can no longer make a World War II film where you can have a chance of an actor playing themselves, right? Like, that's just crazy. That's a product of its time. And then that's really interesting and I think really valuable. Was it on target? Uh, probably yes at the time. Uh, it's aged a little poorly, which I can't really blame the production at the time for. But we talked about the translation issues. I agree that a modern audience cares a lot more about reading more detailed subtitles. I would love to know more about what these Germans are saying, what the French are saying in more detail to catch the nuances of the script and of the performances. The comedic bits kind of mostly don't work anymore. The whole walking right past a group of Germans and this like, again, really Marx brothers kind of play on it where they're like, Oh, ha ha. Those were Germans. I didn't even, couldn't even tell. I'm like, what the fuck is this doing in here? This is like a serious world war two film. Now there are some other minor examples that I think did work. Like <laughs> when uh, they're trying to borrow the beach masters radio, the, the press guys so that they can do a news announcement. And he basically is like, nah, this line's too busy. You can't do it. So they decide to use the homing pigeons, and then the pigeons fly inland towards Germany. <laughs> On the wrong way! Not towards the Germans, you idiots! The other way! The other way! Damn traitors! I thought that was pretty funny. Yes. Also, fun fact, the shillelagh that that guy is wielding. Oh, the stick? Is that what a shillelagh is? That's a shillelagh. It's a, like a novelty stick that you... It's a hitting stick. Okay. That was the shillelagh that the actual... Uh, Kenneth Moore was the actor. Yeah, Kenneth Moore is the actor. Maud is uh, the guy's last the name. The Beachmaster. Yeah, yeah. He lent his actual shillelagh that he carried around while he was doing that to the actor. That's pretty awesome. That's the guy with the British bulldog that was actually a German shepherd yes. in real life. Right. Yes. So that was the that was the the dog I in, loved that. in accuracy was that guy actually had a German shepherd. Yeah. But they changed it to a bulldog so as not to confuse with the German that we already saw with the pet German shepherd. Right. Right. Plus to just stay in character. British dog, British person, German dog, German person. Yep. Yeah, I wish the original uh, guy had let him borrow his real beard, too, because that fake beard was fucking atrocious. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I mean, he, he wasn't British. He was Irish. Let's be clear. Thank you. <laughs> Kenneth Moore. Also, he plays funny. I've, my my own personal favorite adaptation of A Christmas Carol is the Albert Finney musical Scrooge. Mm-hmm. And yep, yep. I've seen and that. And not only was Scrooge's nephew, and I don't know the actor's name, but he was one of the guys in this, just like one of the random nameless people. Uh, but also Kenneth Moore played the, I was like, where have I seen this guy before? He's the ghost of Christmas present in uh, that musical with an even bigger faker beard. Oh man. Yeah. That beard was bad. And one last thing that I didn't have a chance to say in the episode, but for once I can go out on a limb and support all of our Canadian listeners. Where the fuck are the Canadians in this movie? Again, this is not Saving Private Ryan, so we're not just on Omaha Beach, and we're not just trying to make this, like, rah-rah, America saves the day. I mean, there's a little bit of that, but we went through all this effort to show the French commandos in French. They're supposed to be in this, and I looked for the uniforms, and I I think they are portrayed, but I, for the life of me, could not find it based on the uniforms. Okay, and even if they were in here with their uniforms... Come on, everyone else is getting their their time in the sun, right? The French are speaking French. They're, I'm sure their uniforms are accurate. They're portraying, you know, pair drops that the French actually did and the Americans, etc. I mean, there's an Irish guy, like there's Irish characters. There's never a moment of, hey, the Canadians are here with us. And I think it's like the third uh, infantry for the Canadians. But like they're participating in this landing and they had casualties, too. Maybe you have a second of a couple of French Canadians speaking French to each other and like making fun of the French of a French soul. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like you could have had anything in here just to like acknowledge the hundreds of Canadian troops that fought and died on those beaches and they chose to not do that. And I just want to I just want to apologize to the Canadian listeners for the film. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Canada. This is the second movie we've watched where they they have gotten very short shrift, because if anybody remembers when we did the Ben Affleck movie. Oh, Argo. Oh, yes. Yes. When we did Argo, they really, really cut down the Canadian contributions in that one as well. All right. So we owe our listeners down under an Anzac film, and we will do that. Anzac Day just uh, happened. So that's a day of remembrance for all those troops. We posted about it in the group. We will make sure that we find a good Canadian film about Canadian troops. All the Canadian war film that is out there. Well, that's the thing, though. They're participating in all of these wars with the Allies. So they have plenty of war fighting. Yeah, but they like to keep it low key. They do. They're like, it's no big deal. We were there, but whatever. Yeah, I don't, I don't need to have a part. Yeah, I mean, we were there. We got you guys. We got your back. So did I like it? Yeah, my, my answer is also kind of twofold. I also wrote down meh. But as a part of history and cinema history, more importantly, I think, yes, I think everyone should watch this once. It's interesting to see how they do the close-up shots, how they do the transitions. You know, I felt the opening of the film with the helmet on the beach kind of reminded me of the opening of the beach scene in Saving Private Ryan with the hedgehog on the beach. It's a very similar shot in Mm -hmm. its own way. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. It's a nice juxtaposition. And yeah, I think if you pay attention to the tracking shots, the buildings that they built and then demolished, the effort that they went through to have authentic looking equipment, uh, to film on actual locations, like that's something that someone who's into history can appreciate. 
of course, there are all kinds of inaccuracies here, which we brought up, and there just is never going to be a war film that's 100% accurate, with like very few exceptions, and certainly not at this scope, this level where you're trying to show this many ships and this many troops, etc. It's just not going to be perfect. So I think it's an important part of history and cinema history. As just a like film viewing experience, I can't say that I really enjoyed it. Again, there were scenes that were fun to watch. There were interesting ones. I mean... If you blended the two eras and the two methods and the sort of gory realism that's in the combat in Saving Private Ryan was mixed into a film that had the, for some things, better historical accuracy and bigger scope of this film, I would watch the hell out of that film. Like That would be a really interesting film to watch. But so far, no one's really made that film. So I don't think I'm going to rewatch this one. I'm sure there are other Normandy, D-Day, this era World War II films that I can watch, and I'm looking forward to covering them on here. And I'm sure we're going to watch a lot of other John Wayne movies, and I'm interested to see that as well. Liam? Well, I think you guys summed up an awful lot of good points. I know, it sucks to go last. (laughs) That's why we take turns. (laughs) Yeah, not always. You know, but it's... uh, I think the objective of this film was to, by and large, I think probably... I I didn't look up a stated objective, but just like watching the movie, I feel like the movie's thesis is, hey, guys, this was a thing that you did and we see you. The idea was to give a good, a good faithful representation of what happened at D-Day for the people who went through it and for people who didn't go through it to pack as many recognizable faces as possible into it. A lot of music people in this movie. Paul Anka, we mentioned a lot of one name names in this cast list. I don't know if you picked up on that. And you click on any of them on IMDb and they have one name because they were just by and large a singer. They were known as a musician. So it'd be like Cher being in the movie. <laughs> like it, it's just it is what it is. I did notice that. But yeah, they wanted a lot of recognizable people so that people knew that they were watching a movie and that they were had a reason to come by their ticket, you know? So I think they're definitely kind of twofold in that respect. Uh, They wanted people to feel seen and appreciated for the things that they'd done. And when they see it to recognize, Oh yeah, that was that thing. I remember I was there. That looks, that looks about right. Except for the Canadians. They didn't except for the Canadians. The Canadians (laughs) don't go to movies famously. They, they don't like the cinema. I'm teasing. That's why the Toronto film festival is, is Is in New York. (laughs) A nothing blip on on the world of film. Toronto's almost in Pennsylvania. I mean, can we just all agree? No. <laughs> the Canadians. <laughs> it, I mean, like, I can get to it in like two hours. I can get to Toronto faster than I can get to Philly because Pennsylvania's weird. But yeah, so I think that was, I mean, that I think that was it. I think they wanted to, to pay their respects to the people who were there. Was it on target? Yes, at the time. Uh, we talked about this a bit, I think for the time, obviously it was a successful film and I think its intentions were successful at the time as well. Like they, they really did hit the mark, but it was just the, it was pretty much the movie that they needed to make for it to be successful. They didn't have to have any particular character development or compelling storyline or a thing to grab onto beyond, Hey, these were the events of D-Day. These were the events of Operation Overlord. 
you didn't have to do more than that. Whereas if you're making a movie like this today, there has to be an angle or it has to be a focus on some character that was there. I think this is going to be an interesting movie for us to touch back on as we, as we talk about more films, because it already reminds me of things that we've talked about in like 10 other movies recently, you know, the subtitles for the different languages. We were just bitching about that in Charlotte gray feeling like we're uh, doing homework. I feel like this is the third movie in a row that felt a little bit like homework. A little. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's going to happen. It's fun. it is. It's going to happen. Not all of these are going to be fun. I remembered what movie I was thinking of that. I was like, I feel like I've seen this kind of format done a little better. And then I remembered the movie and I was like, Gettysburg. I didn't like that movie either, but like, I feel like it was more successful in this format anyway. Yes, I get, I definitely am on board with that. I didn't like Gettysburg. I had a lot of shitty things to say about Gettysburg, but I think the format that this movie sort of laid out was done better in Gettysburg Mm. with knowing who these people were and having a huge cast of big stars playing real people, but you could sort of keep track of who was who. Right. And you did see most of them again. And most of their stories came to reasonably compelling conclusions. Right. And you like cared to find out what that conclusion was. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that was the, the, that was the example that I was thinking of and couldn't pull it in. That's where I've seen this before. In a way, on what you're talking about, the two films are kind of mirror images of each other, meaning Gettysburg does a pretty good job of taking five famous historical figures and actually giving you enough character development that you like care what happens to them, whether you think they're good guys or bad guys, like you want to follow the story. It's the rest of Gettysburg that we shit on a lot. All the extras, all the big picture stuff, all the deaths look, you know, that kind of stuff for the time period when it was made could have been done a lot better. The shaky political ground that it was on, you know. Oh, yeah. They just didn't have the budget to make those things better. And so they ended up with what they ended up with. This is almost the reverse. All the big picture stuff, they had like real ships and thousands of soldiers and like a a lot of accuracy, even though not 100%. But then in the small way of following a character's storyline throughout the plot, you kind of lost track of people or kind of were like, oh, what happened to that guy? Uh, I don't know. Whatever. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Yeah, It's like, should I pay attention to him? No. Bye. You're throwing me Rod Steiger and Edmund O'Brien. And I'm just like, no more. No more of those guys. Yeah. Rod Steiger was like two lines and he was out. Blip on the radar. But oh, man, did he put his his whole everything into those two lines. Did I like it? I did not care for this shit at all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. This movie is boring as fuck (laughs) guys. I love old movies. I love them to the point where it is my dearest friends. It's their biggest point of ridicule with me is I don't like shit unless it's old. This movie is old and it sucks. And the performances are fine. Like, I don't want to take anything away from the actors and the cinematography. Yes. When I was like, did this win Oscars? Yes, of course it won Oscars for the cinematography, which is well earned. And special effects. Yeah. You can see that that work that they did was influential to a lot of movies that came after it. But that's like maybe 10, 15 minutes out of a three hour long movie. Right. It's a big ask this film especially if you've seen 
all of these people somewhere else. I mean, if you always wanted to see the guy from Green Acres get killed, like this is the movie for you, but you got to wait <laughs> all three hours to see it. It's like the last thing that happens. It just nothing pays off. Nothing, nothing pays off in this movie the way that I think a movie should in some ways. Like it didn't even like undercut expectations. It gave you nothing. It delivered nothing. And the nothing it delivered was boring. Legit. Here we are again, just selling the shit out of a movie. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're being honest. Yeah, that's true. That being said, it's an interesting companion piece to Saving Private Ryan. For sure. Because there's a lot of shit I don't like Mm -hmm. about Saving Private Ryan. And Dan, I think you're very, like, good point there, Dan, that if you could make Saving Private Ryan and The Longest Day have a baby. Right. It would be an awesome baby. If you took the best parts of both movies, it would be like the D-Day story. Yeah. All of the modern articles that I read about this film, all of them made comparisons to Saving Private Ryan. Makes sense. And at certain points, and a couple of them, it just devolved into being an article about Saving Private Ryan with like one or two paragraphs about this Mm. movie. So it it is a very apt comparison that a lot of people have made. Well, and it's not even like necessarily something you have to compare it to. I think this movie holds up against Saving Private Ryan in a lot of ways, especially thematically, in that like D-Day doesn't take 20 minutes. No, exactly. Oh my God, you feel how long it took. The <laughs> longest day. It is a long ass <laughs> day. Oh, and the the proto like the rear projection behind Rommel of the sea was oh, killing that was me. Terrible. The yeah. other thing uh, I wanted yeah. to know, and I wish like, but this is the kind of like sort of a setup and no delivery. It opens with a dude getting gunned down in the field by the Gestapo, like yeah, chasing him down. Yeah, who the fuck was down. that guy? <laughs> what, what was in the briefcase? I have no idea. Again, is this Pulp Fiction? What was in the fucking briefcase? <laughs> we never know. No, nobody nobody gets to know that. Was it the plans? Was it the code of the poetry that's coming in over the airwaves? Maybe. I don't know. Does anybody give a shit? I kind of did. Then I stopped because I'm never going to find out. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of an editing mistake. I'm assuming something got cut out that explained that and they just like never went back to fill it in. I'm like, all right. Yeah, somebody was like, yeah, we don't need that part. And then they watched it. They're like, oh, we did need that part. Shit. Well, it doesn't matter. I have to assume that's how they found out about the poetry code and which one they were looking for. Yes. That would make the most sense. I agree. But like, Jesus Christ, guys, give me something. Yeah, that was bad. That's a great way to set up some interest. And then you just fucked it. Yep. Okay. So now that we feel like we've done homework for three episodes in a row, I'm really hoping we're doing something that's maybe a little more fun for the next one. Katie, can you can you come through and tell us what we're doing next? Next time, we are covering Outlaw King, directed by David McKenzie. Written by Bathsheba Doran, David McKenzie, and James McInnes. And... I'm sorry, Bathsheba? Bathsheba, yeah. Holy shit. Released in 2018. This is about Robert the Bruce. Nice. And it stars Chris Pine as Robert the Bruce. Famous Scotsman, Chris Pine. Yeah, exactly. Stephen Delane plays King Edward. Uh, Rebecca Robin plays Queen Margaret. And Billy Howell is Edward, Prince of Wales. And this is very famously a split second shot of Chris Pine's uh, member. Getting that D. 
Oh my. This is already better than the longest day. We're we're <laughs> under a whole new D-Day. Exactly. Get the longest D. <laughs> I mean, I've heard good things. Hopefully. Um, so this one is available on Netflix. It was produced by them, and it's very different than anything else we've done in the past few. So I'm really hoping it's at least more entertaining. It's oh, And it's only two hours, folks, so it's short in comparison. This will be interesting because we haven't covered Braveheart yet, but this takes place right after the time period from Braveheart. Obviously, Robert the Bruce is a character in both of them, so it'll be interesting to see how they handle the historical accuracy. Robert which the is, Bruce was actually like my favorite character in Braveheart, so I'm kind of excited. Yeah. But Braveheart is infamous for its historical inaccuracy, oh, yeah. so it'll be oh, curious yeah. to see how they handle it in this film. I wonder if he has a leopard dad in this. We'll get back to it. So uh, let's not have a three-hour episode of the show, even though this film is three hours. So thank you guys all for listening. Uh, again, I hope that our Canadian listeners are going to stick around for <laughs> a time when they are represented <laughs> that day, better. That time that we do the Canadian war movie. Yeah. We promise we'll get to it eventually. We definitely will. If you want to support the show and hear us do fantasy, sci-fi, horror, war films, other stuff, you can go check out our show Danger Close Enough on Patreon. You can go to uh, dangerclosepod.com forward slash support. It's only four bucks a month. And we promise you a new episode every single month. We got 12 or something in the bag, including our most recent, which was our first Star Wars entry. We did The Last Jedi. Look out for some posts on the weapons and armor and airplanes and all the other stuff we don't have time to get into here in the Facebook group. You can go to Danger Close Podcast discussion group on Facebook, and I'm sure that the guys that handle those posts will have something interesting for this episode. And we will catch you guys on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.